0: This is part six of a sermon series called Arriving, and it's on the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5, 6, and 7. It is Jesus' sort of Magna Carta, it's his constitution of a new people, and so we've called it arriving because we're saying, okay, this is the sermon, this is, these are the teachings that were compiled that Jesus gave as a way of saying, my kingdom is arriving on the earth. See, Jesus didn't walk around teaching us how to get from earth to heaven, instead he went around proclaiming the God of heaven has come to rule even now on the earth. And so it's arriving, this is how we live in light of an arriving kingdom. And yet, there's another angle to this arriving word. It's also because God is the one who made us, this is also what it looks like to be truly and fully human. You realize that when we sin and when we make mistakes, we often say, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm only human. But the truth is we should say, I'm sorry, I, I goofed, it's because I'm less than human. Because to be fully human is to be as Jesus is. Jesus is the truly, fully human being, the way we were designed to live. And so this whole Sermon on the Mount is not just the kingdom that's arriving, but it's you and I that are are arriving. We are arriving into this place of being fully human. In a very real way, you could look at this whole Sermon on the Mount as a description of what Christ is making us to be. You could say, well, actually, it's the description of the kind of righteousness He's placing inside of you and me, the new heart, the new life, the the God who knew no sin became sin so that we can become the righteousness of God. We can become this kind of righteous, this kind of righteousness. But you know, maybe it's helpful to think of it a little bit like what a surgeon would do. Imagine a surgeon coming to you and saying, okay, listen... Um, th- th- these, um, th- these fevers you've been having, that's not really the problem. The problem is you have appendicitis, and we've got to get your appendix out. There's, there's an infection here. And, so, and, and a, good, you know, a good surgeon will kind of explain to you, this is what the problem is, then this is what the procedure is, and then now this is what the recovery is going to look like, right? This is what the problem is. This is what the procedure is. And now this is how you're going to live after surgery. Don't, don't go run a marathon. Don't go, you know, doing cartwheels. You've got to, you know, rest. You've got to drink lots of fluids. This is a little bit like what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, I'm going to diagnose the problem in a way that the law could never do. The law gave commands. I want to get to the very heart of it. You remember our analogy last week? We said, like a parent who tells a toddler, don't talk to strangers. Right then, all of a sudden, they get a little bit older, and then you, and then you introduce them to a friend, and you say, "Say hi to Mr. Smith." And they're like, "You said don't talk to strangers." They're like, no, no, no. You can talk to a stranger if mommy or daddy are with you. Okay, okay. Then you say hi, and then later on, they get a little bit older, and they say, "I got no friends at school." You say, "Well, listen, just go up to someone you don't know and introduce yourself." But you said don't talk to strangers unless mommy or daddy are with me, and you're not with me at school. You know. And then all of a sudden, a good parent says, you know what I'm really getting to? I'm getting to the heart of this, which is choose the right kind of people to be friends with, right? So it's a little bit like that. The law says, don't murder. And Jesus says, you know what, let's get even deeper. Let's diagnose the problem a little bit deeper than that. Let's get inside. Let's eliminate hate and anger. Let's get rid of this stuff. And by the way, as a little corrective to last week, I just want to say, I I suggested this hypothesis last week that that our anger is is usually not righteous anger. I think I want to retract that. And I think I want to say that if we are made in the image of God, there are injustices that do stir up a kind of anger in us. But be careful because righteous anger with us quickly turns into self-righteous anger. And so it's interesting, even talking with Matt about some of this stuff, he said initially when he got into this work, it was nothing but anger for these brothel owners, but as you get closer to them, remember anger creates distance, but as you close the distance and get to know them, all of a sudden what he said, what I feel most of the time is just broken heartedness. And so our human anger does turn into self-righteous anger, but that doesn't mean that there ought not to be injustices that get us... Stir it up. Okay, so th- there's my corrective from last week. I can issue a correction. The papers aren't the only one who can do that. Okay. <laughs> but the righteousness from within. And so Jesus is saying, look, I'm standing up here. I am the teacher that's greater than Moses. I am the one that's greater than the one who gave you the law. I am the true Son of God. As the fulfillment of the law, I can show you what the law was trying to get at. So we heard the gospel reading this morning out of Matthew 5, and I just want to read the first couple of verses of it. You have heard it was said, Jesus is saying here, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What is it about lust? What is it about lust that makes it so destructive? I think we could say that, you know, part of the problem here with, with lust and why Jesus is saying that the root of this is not the behavior, but the root of this is desires, because lust actually distorts our desires. Lust be- takes desires and begins to twist them and distort them. I don't know what your parents told you as advice growing up, but I meet uh, countless young people who said that their only advice uh, during high school was, just don't get her pregnant, or just don't get pregnant, and so maybe the Christian version of it was, well, just don't have sex, just don't have sex, yeah, I mean, whatever else you do, you kids, you know, whatever, but just don't have sex, and so the whole discussion immediately when, when sexual desires kind of awaken in us in our teen years, all of a sudden we say, the only programming, the only message we've received is, well, just don't have sex, everything else, okay, whatever, but just don't do that. And so the whole obsession becomes about a line. Don't cross this line. And then every youth pastor in, in the room knows the discussion about, well, how far is too far? And, and where's the line really? And, and, and what sex? What is sex? It depends what you mean by that. And all of the discussion about this gets focused on a particular behavior or a particular line. Several years ago, I was sitting with a friend of mine who was uh, about to get married, and, and, uh, and, and we were talking, and, and I was saying to him, I'm excited for you, this is great, you know, you, you've kind of waited, you know, and here, here it comes, you know, you're, you're getting married, and, and um, he broke down in tears, and he said, Glenn, I wish someone had told me. I said, What? I wish someone had told me how damaging pornography would be. Nobody told me that. Everybody just said it was just, you know, another sin. But I, I wish someone had told me because now I feel like it's really hard to retrain my brain. It's really hard to reshape my heart. See, I wonder if Jesus is getting to this deeper place about this issue because the problem is not behavior-related or what line to cross and not to cross. But there's something worse happening here. There's a desire that's being twisted. There's a healthy, God-given passion, this desire, this longing kind of love that is being twisted. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, in his book Discipleship, or there's an edited popular version of it called The Cost of Discipleship, He's talking about this text and he says roughly something like this. He doesn't quite say it like an equation, but roughly something like this, that lust equals desire minus love. Lust equals desire minus love. The longing kind of love without the God kind of love. The longing kind of love without the self-giving kind of love. And so you can see that the problem that Jesus, the good surgeon, is getting to is he's saying, okay, listen... I don't want to just talk to you about what adultery technically is. I want to talk to you about the thing that makes adultery possible. And that's a distorted desire. Imagine again with the surgeon and the appendicitis thing. Imagine if you came to the doctor and said, Doctor, I've got a fever. I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm in you know, cold sweat here. And the doctor's saying, Oh, well, just, just take some Advil and go home. And like, I, I think something's wrong. And no, there's nothing. You just have a fever. But all of us know that a fever is not... The sickness, right? The fever is the sign that there's a sickness. In the same way Jesus is saying, adultery is not the sickness. The sickness is a distorted desire. The sickness is a heart that has whose passions and longings and desires have been warped a little bit. And that's what I want to fix. This is the thread between this specific text on adultery and lust and divorce. Seems kind of an interesting thing to put those two texts together, but back to back in Matthew's gospel, there are. it says, whoever looks at a woman with lust, lustful intent has committed adultery, and then he says, and if you divorce a, a, a woman except for sexual immorality, you are causing her to commit adultery. Why is Jesus saying this? Women in the first century and before and, and for much after had no power to divorce a man. Unlike our day, divorce was was only in the man's power, and so it was often a way that a man could subjugate or subordinate a woman. Uh, In fact, in the first century, a woman was just a little bit better than property. And so men began to say, okay, well, look, when I have used up this woman, I can divorce her. And they were interpreting Moses' law to say, look, Moses says you can divorce her. And the verse is Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, if you're the cross-referencing type, but the verse basically says, if a woman loses, to find, or loses favor in her husband's eyes because of something he finds out about her, hint, hint, there's been unfaithfulness, then he may put her away. There were two rabbis during Jesus' day, the Shammai rabbi and the Hillel rabbi, and and, and one of them was more conservative. Shammai said, look, you can't divorce a woman unless there's immorality or adultery. But there was this other rabbi, Hillel, who, who says, let's camp out on the verse where God says to Moses, if the woman loses favor in her husband's eyes. And so this rabbi went on to say that if a woman did so much as burn dinner, the man could put her away. I'm serious. Or, and some of you are like, "Woo! glad that we're not with that rabbi today. <laughs> A lot of marriages wouldn't make it past the first three months. <laughs> and then, then, then he went on to say, or maybe if, she, if she's too plain looking for him, he can put her away. Now we're getting closer to what Jesus was getting at. See, the link between lust and the kind of divorce that Jesus was addressing is both of those things objectify a person. Both of those things treat a person like, a, like an object. When you lust, you say, okay, this is, a thi- this, is a, this is no longer a person, this is an object that I can use up. And when you put away a woman, the, the kind of divorce that was happening in Jesus' day, you're saying, okay, I need to get what I need, and when I don't get it anymore, I will put you away. Now clearly this was only a first century problem. Right? Because certainly we don't have husbands and wives saying, once I've used you up, once you no longer meet my needs, I'll put you away. This is the trouble with how sexuality, even in marriage in our culture, gets perverted. Because the, un, the subliminal message we've all heard is, look, if she's not meeting your needs, then of course you're going to go elsewhere. And Jesus is saying, That's, there's something fundamentally wrong with that thinking. You've turned a person into an object. You're trying to use them up. Or vice versa, if he's not making me happy, if he's not, then then I, you know. And so the concession that Jesus makes about this, and by the way, there's so much more to be said about divorce that we will not touch today. All right, but there's so much more. It's a, it's, a, it's a layered and nuanced issue that we're not going to delve into. The only link we're going to draw today is this link between the lust and the kind of divorce Jesus is addressing right here in Matthew 5 which has to do with treating people like an object. Saying, okay, okay, as long as you'll do this, as long as we have this contract worked out, as long as you'll take care of me, as long as I take care of you. But then once I use you up, what am I going to do with this anymore? Throw it away. Once all the Coca-Cola is gone from the bottle, throw the bottle away. Get a different one. Because I just, that's all you are to me. And Jesus is saying, there's something terribly wrong with that approach to people. There's something terribly wrong with that way of looking at one another as male and female, as men and women. You say, well, Glenn, what, what is the difference between lust and love? I mean, if lust is desire minus love, if lust is the longing kind of love minus the giving kind of love, then, then what, what, what is this? What, what really is the difference? You know, for a lot of Christian young people, we've sort of thought that the difference between lust and love is marriage. That all you need is just marriage. In fact, I've heard pastors say to their um, congregants, "Okay, listen here. Listen, once you get married, all you need to do is channel all of those things toward your spouse, and then you're good. That's all you need to make sexual desires holy is the covenant of marriage. Is that true?" Some of you are wise enough to know. That can't be true. The problem is, our desires have not been transformed. Our lust has just been postponed. When you tell young people, oh, listen, all you need is the covenant of marriage, and then unleash the beast in you. (laughs) You're married now. The problem is, you've never asked them to look at letting the Lord transform their desires. You're just teaching them to postpone their lust. Do you know that lust works within a marriage, or can work within a marriage? You're looking at me like, what? How is that? What? All you have to do, and I don't encourage this, but all you have to do is is take a gander at some of the so-called Christian marriage books or Christian sex books, and you'll find that Christian sex books are built on the same premise that culture's movies are, which is this. The value of sex is the thrill and the pleasure and the high. Now, certainly, there is that. But if you think about it, most of the movies you've seen or the TV shows you've seen, sex is always kind of this forbidden thing. It's this tantalizing kind of dance and you feel the sexual tension between the characters and then finally it happens and you're like, ma! Ah! I love love. <laughs> and then you get married and it's like that for your first year. And then you're like, okay, well, that, that feeling is missing. So the Christian sex books say, what I need is more exciting stuff, right? And so the Christian sex books say, well, let's just, let's just find ways to make it more interesting and more exciting because all of sex is about excitement, how do we recapture that honeymoon excitement? Is that it? I tell you, it's, it's, it's really disheartening. Because that's all the church has to offer about sex, is that we'll teach you ways to make it just as exciting. That's it? Very often people think that Christians have a notoriously low view of sex. We're the prudes, right? Oh, hey, hey, we don't talk about that. I have to send out emails before I talk about it at church, you know? <laughs> but the truth is, the church is the guardian of the highest possible view of sex. We believe that sexual intimacy is the physical expression of this deep longing that we all have, and it is to be fully known and to be fully loved. And, and uh, obvious, for obvious reasons, sex does that. It, 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 it brings you in this most vulnerable sort of place where you are fully known and yet fully loved. The church is the one that says, we'll tell you what sex is about. It's not first about the forbidden, or it's not about the thrill, or it's not about the chase, or it's not about the game or the insecurity or the dominance or the pursuit. It's not about any of that stuff. You know what it's about? It's about intimacy. It's about two lives being fully known fully loved. See, lust objectifies. Love dignifies. A lot of times in premarital, people say, well, what's off limits? It's kind of the wrong question. The question to ask is, how can I love my spouse in such a way that dignifies them? See, you're not looking to transfer your lust from the girl on the computer to now your wife. It doesn't work. It doesn't too many Christians think that all oh, once again, once we get married, that'll fix it all. So what I need is, I don't need my desires transformed. I just need them transferred. And Jesus says, you need more than that. You need a different kind of longing love. Not the longing love that objectifies, but the longing love that dig- dignifies. That's the difference. And church, if we don't get to the root of it, all we're doing is telling people to postpone their less. And then we wonder why we have marriage problems because she won't do these things and he won't do that thing and I don't care. It's like, guys, have you figured out yet that this is about intimacy, that this is about being fully known and fully loved? This is about a way to dignify the other, not objectify the other. This is the difference. We're coming up on about the one year mark of the Colorado wildfires that happened here, you know, from Waldo Canyon a year ago and... You think of fire as this destructive thing, this thing that rages wild and burns down. And so we're tempted to say, fire's bad, fire's bad. Nobody have a fire. And we're like, but, what, but fires are awesome, like s'mores. <laughs> fires are the best. What do you mean no fires? Like, okay, okay, well, um, okay, but we've got to find a way for fire to be harnessed and, and, and shaped and Right, 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 right. See, that's it. The message of the church about sex is not, sex is icky, so avoid it. The message of the church about sex is, this is one of God's greatest gifts to fuse intimacy between a man and a woman. And because it is such, it has to be housed in the right thing. In the message paraphrase of 1 Corinthians 7, I love this, Paul says, sexual desires are strong, but the covenant of marriage is stronger. You know what? That's the image I get. I think of a fire and a fireplace. I think of a fire in this right setting. I think of this thing of where desires don't run rampant and turn selfish and become distorted like a wildfire, but they're set within something stronger than it that all of a sudden shapes it, changes it. It becomes not objectifying, but dignifying. You say, Glenn, that's very nice. I appreciate all the rhyming words. <laughs> But our world is broken. I know. I know. And the truth is, I would wager that there's not one of us who has not been touched by the brokenness of this subject. In fact, I was praying for you a lot this week, more than normal, um, because I know when you say the word lust or pornography, instantly guilt comes over us instantly. There's this sense of shame. There've been a, a number of different kinds of studies, you know, and depending on whose numbers you you believe, I think I was reading a Slate magazine article, and it was it was citing a, a survey that Cosmopolitan Mag did, and, and Slate said we're going to trust that Cosmo is the expert on this kind of a survey. Something like 75 percent to 80 percent of people. Uh, have at least in one time in their life looked at, looked at pornography with as much frequency as once a month or so. So we know it. It's around us. It's there. It's more accessible than it ever has been because of our gadgets and our tech and all of that. So what do we do? This is, a, this is not just a, a, a male issue. This is a female issue. This is an everybody issue. This is a, the issue on the side of being the ones who see it and the issue on the side of the ones who are trying to love the people who have seen it and to say, what does that mean for how you see me? and What do we do with this? Henry Nouwen, the the late Catholic priest and author, in his wonderful thin little book, The Life of the Beloved, said, you know, our brokenness is probably seen most in our sexuality because it touches on this God-given ability for intimacy or longing for intimacy. So wouldn't it make sense that our brokenness kind of Hits on the place where intimacy is possible. What do we do with it? Well, one of the things Jesus says in this text is to gouge out your eye and cut off your right hand. Anybody? Let's have an altar call. <laughs> this is where you're like, oh my gosh, Jim, is that in the Bible? <laughs> And we know this is hyperbole, right? And then what Jesus is saying is, okay, well then get serious about it then. And I do think that's true. I do think it's true that some of us probably do need to get serious about it. It's a, it's a funny thing to really admit, but there are, there are, different, there are certain points where you, you might have to say, you know what, I think this is more than like a problem. I think if I'm honest, I have an addiction. And I haven't wanted to admit that but this is like an addiction the same way that alcoholism is an addiction. Like this is a deal. And then in the same way that part of recovery for an alcoholic is not one drop ever, that this is a not one swimsuit issue ever or whatever. This is not one not not one you know Beyonce halftime show, not one what I just eliminate all of it, please. And it could be, it could be that that's the, 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 the decisions for, for a lot of you to say, you know, what? I I do need to get serious about this. No internet in the house, or get rid of the smartphones. It just the smartphone leads to foolishness. So just forget that. Maybe I, I think changing the environments that you're in does matter. I think limiting or curbing the access that you have does matter. We've talked before about things like covenant eyes things that you can have on your devices, locks on your cable TV, all of it, we've talked about this, and those are all good things. And I do think it's, it's, it's an honest conversation to have with your friends or with your family and to say, hey, you know, you probably don't know this about me, but I probably don't need to watch that with you or whatever. But Jesus wants us to go even deeper than that. Not just to the environment, but to the thing that distorts our desires in the first place. Why? See, maybe lust is just trying to fill a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. Trying to fill a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. Maybe part of this is there's something in us that's longing for something, loneliness, trying to, trying to fill something and we keep filling it with the wrong thing. Maybe, and to borrow the language of the counseling world, maybe it is like addictions so often are the result of trying to medicate a wound. It's very helpful to not just think on the surface level of environments. Okay, I got ch- all of our accountability tends to focus on environments. Okay, change the environments, limit the access. Okay, stop, stop, stop. But, but we're not just preventative here. We want to be healing here. And so to say, okay, what is the thing, you're, what's the wound you're trying to medicate when you move toward these things? When are the moments? Well, the moments are when I'm tired or when i'm alone or when i feel lousy or where are those pla- what's the wound i'm trying to when did that wound first occur picture with me if you will like livestock okay like a cow or a horse or something with this big open sore you know my father-in-law is a farmer we're going to the farm in a couple of weeks i've helped him do all kinds of things with the cattle uh, and, and, and very often you'll see flies swarming around a certain second. And, then you, and you look a little bit close and you say, well, I know why all these flies are here. There's like this sore here. We've got to treat that. Can I tell you something? Focusing only on accountability is like swatting flies. That's fine. You've got to swat the flies, but eventually you've got to treat the wound. Eventually you've got to get deeper than fly swatting. Jesus isn't calling us in the fly swatting business of saying, okay, okay, no, okay. I bind that thought. You (laughs) know, charismatics. Jesus wants to know, can we go deeper? Where's this wound? Where's the longing that needs to be healed? Was it a parent that never made you feel good enough or loved? Was it a first boyfriend or first girlfriend that taught you that you were only good for one thing? Where is that wound? Maybe we objectify others because we ourselves feel like objects. Maybe we've been made to be to feel like objects by a parent, by an old boyfriend or girlfriend, or friend. How do we know real love? Our New Testament reading this morning was Ephesians 2, and I'll just read a couple of verses of it. Paul goes on and says, You were living, doing whatever you wanted, doing what you please. And we're like, Yeah, that's true. And then he says, however God is rich in mercy, he brought us to life with Christ while we were dead as a result of those things that we did wrong. Listen, the gospel is not going from bad people to good people. It's going from dead people to living people. What Jesus comes to, how do we know what this love is? This love doesn't come to us and say, okay, listen, I love you, but um, you've got to keep living this way or else I'm taking my love away. That's the love most of us encounter. But the love of God that has the capacity to heal us in our deepest places of our lives and our hearts is the love of God that says, you're dead. You couldn't do anything for me, and yet I love you. And I gave my my life for you so that you can come alive. You have been saved by grace. Gregory of Nyssa, one of the church fathers in the early century, said, that which is unassumed is unhealed. In other words, that what Jesus didn't take on, Jesus cannot heal. But Jesus took on our humanity so that Jesus can heal our humanity. Jesus took on the, the brokenness of our world. He took on human flesh and human being. He became fully human so that you can become truly human. He becomes fully human so you can become truly human. That wound can be healed in Christ. The guilt and shame that we often feel with this subject is, okay, Glenn, you're just going to tell me to try harder and do better, and I get it, and I already feel lousy, and fine. But the gospel is not try harder and then you'll be loved. The gospel is you are fully known and you are fully loved. Fully known. There is no need to hide any decision, hide any action, Hide anything. God sees us in our brokenness. God sees us in our struggles. God sees us in our woundedness. God sees us in the midst of it and speaks the word of love over us and says, come on, child. Let me heal this. Let me change this. Let me restore this. It's the love of God that reshapes and restores and realigns our desires. It's the love of God that reshapes, restores And realigns, and let me tell you why I say restores. Because the Christian answer to the problem of runaway desires is not to say, well, you shouldn't have any desires. That's what we think, though, isn't it? We think, well, okay, I guess I'm a Christian now, so I'll try not to desire anything. No, it's to have them restored in a fullness. C.S. Lewis gave a very famous sermon Called the weight of glory. I want to read an excerpt out of it. He says, "If there lurks in modern minds the notion that the desire to to our own good, earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it, is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith." What's he saying? There was a Western philosopher named Immanuel Kant, and he said, "Look, a thing can't be virtuous if you actually want to do it." <laughs> Now, that hasn't crept into Christianity at all, has it? Where we imagine that all of the Christian virtues must be the opposite of my desire or the opposite of my enjoyment, and therefore, well, if it's good, God must be against it. And inadvertently, this is the message we hear, particularly about sex. Well, of course it's great, so God must must hate it. If it's great, God hates. Something like that. Write a jingle about that, you know. But that's not Augustine, that's not Paul, that's not Jesus, that's Kant. Kantian ethics of saying, look, if you, if you like it, that's not a virtue. If you actually wanted to do it, that's not a virtue. And Lewis says, that's, that's wrong. In fact, a corollary, maybe it's not Immanuel Kant, maybe it's the Buddhist version of it that says, look, become passionless. Kill all of your desires. You don't need desires, you don't need passions, you just need nirvana and not the band Well, is that what Jesus is saying? Come to me, and I will make you passionless. Is that right? No. I love this. Lewis goes on. He says, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. Oh, come on, Lewis. That when it comes to these desires, Jesus isn't saying, okay, kill those desires, become passionless, or postpone those desires. No, it's neither to kill it nor to postpone it, but to let Jesus reshape it and realign it. See, when we try to... uh, Let me say this. Lust objectifies, love dignifies, Christ satisfies. Christ satisfies. That's why our Old Testament reading was the psalmist where he says, Lord, you, how great is your unfailing love. You call all of creation to this feast. And they drink. I mean, look, listen to those images in the psalms. Are those images of a miserly God that you come to him and he says, and you say, God, may I please? I suppose you can have a little joy today. But don't get used to it. Does God work at Oliver Twist's Orphanage? Might I have some more? More! This is not the God who's spooning out little porridge for you horrible orphans. This is the God who says, I prepare a feast for all of creation. Come on and feast at my table. Come on and eat and drink. What I'm offering you is far better than what you've known. See, when Christ is in his rightful place, all our other desires get set in their proper place. Does our human need for companionship disappear because we know Jesus? No. Remember, it was before the fall that God says to Adam, Hey, Adam, I love you. It's not good for you to be alone. I've made you to be in community. But see, when Christ takes the central place in our heart, all of our relationships with others don't become a, <laughs> I need something from you! But it becomes a thank you for this gift of friendship. Thank you for this gift of companionship. Thank you for this gift of love. Thank you for this... And everything becomes the gifts that we freely receive from one another instead of the <clears throat> thing we're trying to just take from one another. Does that make sense? See... Paul, in all of his letters, it's very interesting, Romans, Galatians, I, I think you can trace a certain narrative arc in his letters. He goes, with Paul, it's something like this. First the gospel, then the church. First the gospel, then the church. Christ in the center, now the community around you. See, what kind of community makes this kind of life possible? What kind of community makes this kind of life possible? There is a real need for others God sets the lonely within families. I wonder if what it would look like to be the kind of community that makes the movement toward lust as a medication for loneliness unnecessary. Because we're the kind of community that says, Loneliness? No, come, come into this family. Come into this home. You don't need to be stuck in a basement somewhere with the world of Warcraft and the interwebs. Come out. Come belong. Come be part of this. I know what you're longing for and you're turning to a sort of a distorted version of this, but come on and let's have friendship. Be the kind of community that makes the turn toward lust difficult. What does this mean practically? Well, it could mean a variety of things. It could mean that we think of ourselves as journeying this way together. And so we say, well, I I don't want to dress in a way that provokes lust. Now listen, there's been much that's been said in church that puts weight on this on women, and that's unfair. That is unfair. But there's an equal an opposite error where all of a sudden women say, well, i got no bearing on whatever's going on in his heart. But the truth is, if we are community, then we all affect each other. And so you say, well, I, I don't want to make it easy for our community to lust. I'm, I'm going to make it more difficult. So I'm going to be the kind of woman that doesn't think that my best, uh, the best things about me are, are my flesh. Vice versa, though. It's guys, how do we speak in ways that dignify women beyond her looks? How do we move? Because when you treat women like that, women learn that that's all they're good for. And so then the movement to lust becomes this awful spiral. What does it mean to be the kind of community that makes that move toward lust difficult? Would it look like saying, you know, guys, let's, let's not do that movie. I don't, I don't know if we should do that movie. Uh, 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 that TV show, I mean, I mean, uh, no, let's, let's not do it. And it's not because we're legalists and we're like, oh. oh. But it's because you're saying, you know what? If we consistently immerse ourselves in this kind of a visual sight and sound, we're going to believe that that's what love is. We're going to believe that love is built on thrills and newness and novelty and, 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 and I don't want that. Let's not do that. Does that make sense? To be the kind of community that makes this move difficult. But the ultimate way that our desires get reshaped is by coming to the fountain itself. Jesus on the cross said, I thirst. He took on the thirst of our souls, the thirst of our very heart, the ache inside of us to be fully known and fully loved. He took on the thirst of it. Why? So that when we drink from this cup and we eat of this bread, we say, Jesus, this is the feast of love that you've prepared for me. This is it. St. Augustine worked very hard to synthesize the two Greek concepts of eros and agape. We all know agape is the self-giving kind of love. And eros we think of as being the desire kind of love, the longing kind of love. And Augustine said Christians tend to think that with God we should only have the agape love. Okay, God, I want to give you glory. Okay, God, I want to give you praise. Okay, God, I want to give you my life. And he says actually for the Christian, these two things get fused together. And so we come to God to give, but we also come to God because He ends up being the very one we've been longing for. And so you turn your longing love toward Christ, and He reshapes it, and He sets it right. One of the reasons why we sing worship songs, we're going to sing a lot more this morning, and we're going to sing things like about how we love your presence, how we need your presence, and why do we sing that? That sounds so ooey-gooey, because we're turning the longings of our heart to the only one who satisfies We're training our hearts, we're training our loves to come alive as we love Jesus. Amen?